when we are absolutely our best selves, when we dare to be audacious and ambitious and really step up into that vision, we raise the average of everybody. Like it's not that I win, you lose. By me being greater, I'm making you smaller. It's like when I can be my grandest version of my greatest vision, I can actually lift other people up as well. And that really was fundamental to me, even having the audacity to think that I could row across oceans and or make any difference to the future sustainability of the planet. That was Roz Savage, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 114. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad that you're joining me today. Can I take a quick minute to say some mushy thank you stuff? Thank you for listening to this show. Thank you for valuing honest conversations. Thank you for being open to hearing from guests whose life experiences and opinions might be different from your own. And thanks for the more tangible stuff as well, for taking two minutes to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. Seriously, it's such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people to find us. So thank you so much for taking a second and doing that. And thank you, of course, for supporting and funding the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, which means that we have complete freedom to come together with more honesty than ever before. I have such a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but first, in case you're new to this show, I want to just take a second to explain what we do here. At the heart of it, my guests and I are really committed to one simple and powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I certainly don't have any magic bullet 10-day six-step life hack plans for anything. So if that's what you're looking for, sorry, I don't have all of the capital A answers. Um, As a recovering self-help junkie, I'm actually pretty over that approach. And my guess is that maybe you are too, and that that's why you're here. So yeah, that's not what this show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. You've probably heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, you're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. So when you support this show, you're saying, loudly and proudly, that women's voices deserve to be heard, and that no topic should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for new Real Talk Live events. 
So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Roz Savage. Roz is the first and so far only woman to row solo across the world's big three oceans, Atlantic, Pacific, and Indian. She holds four Guinness World Records and was appointed a member of the Order of the British Empire for services to fundraising and the environment. Rowing solo across entire oceans was an unexpected career move for a former management consultant who doesn't particularly enjoy exercise. She was inspired to brave the oceans when she realized two things. One, we're all capable of much more than we tend to believe we are. And two, we need to make some changes if we're going to live healthy lives on a thriving planet. So she used her voyages to expand her own limits and to promote sustainable living. In this episode, Roz tells the story of how she changed her life and became a solo ocean rower. We talk about change, fear, pain, and the traps of comfort that can so easily keep us stuck. Her honesty about what it's like to undertake huge challenges by yourself, what she learned, how she handles fear, and where she finds her motivation was super powerful for me to hear about, and I hope that you enjoy her stories just as much. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we are good to go. Roz, welcome to the show. Absolute pleasure to be here with you. Thanks, Nicole. So I want you to drop me into your real life and tell me how you spent the first, let's say, two hours of your day today. What'd you do? <laughs> um, I guess sort of the usual stuff. Nothing uh, nothing that much out of the ordinary. Got up, did my stretching, my meditation, drew a card from my deck of wisdom cards, and... Um, after breakfast, I treated myself to a bit of a session with my journal. I mean, hey, aren't these the joys of working for yourself? That sounds like a lovely morning. Already I have questions. What are wisdom cards? Oh, well, I use a particular deck of cards called the Osho Zen Tarot. Um, my friend who introduced them to me uh, calls them the Osho Face Punch Cards. Uh, <laughs> sometimes the truth hurts. Um, they're based on Zen Buddhism. And so I just like to have this practice where each morning I shuffle the deck and pull out a card that feels like the right card and um, read what it means and use that as my little bit of um, spiritual work for, or part of my spiritual work for the day. This is fascinating. I have tried and failed to develop some kind of practice. I don't know if we would call it a spiritual practice, a meditation practice, any of that. So I'm always completely fascinated with people that have that sort of baked into their life. Do you remember what the card was from this morning? Oh, actually, I didn't like this morning's card very much. <laughs> um, I uh, I always know I'm in trouble when it's uh, from the, the clouds suite, because that's about mind. And it's usually mind that trips us up. Uh, so the one this morning was control, which is, um, I guess, <laughs> I, we'll, we'll be talking more about this later. What the card is saying is that you can try and 
have this locked down sense of control over your life, but it's not really a fun way to live. That actually when we can really lighten up and sort of dance with life rather than trying to control the events or the people that we encounter, that's when life starts to become really much more magical. So it's always a useful reminder, but I really like the cards that are more like there's a beautiful one that's We Are the World, which has got a picture of the earth and rainbow colored people holding hands all around the edge of the earth. Something like that really gets my day off to a start with a, a smile. Yeah, I, I feel like I would always pull the card that was like, stop trying to think you can control all the things every single day. That's the one that I would need. <laughs> like, it's so cute. You think you're in charge. You're not in charge. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um you know, I haven't always been terribly good at maintaining a spiritual practice. I've got, uh, you know, I know people. I won't say they're necessarily close friends because <laughs> they're a bit too disciplined. <laughs> and they could be a bit intimidating. But, um, you know, who will meditate for 20, morning, 20 minutes every morning and every afternoon. And I think it's great. Or oh, I also know some people who will meditate for two hours in the morning and in the evening. But I think for... Those of us who have a lot of other things going on and we're not quite ready to be nuns or monks just yet, um, I think doing something is always better than doing nothing. And in keeping with the sort of lightheartedness of Zen Buddhism, I really like to just do things that feel nice, the things I actually want to do rather than the things that I feel obliged to do. So for me, journaling is like a really key part of my practice. And I have, I use lovely notebooks and a nice flowing pen and just the act of sitting down and writing for a while in the morning makes me feel really good and just helps me make sense of things that are happening in my life and keep my priorities in order. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm not saying that's for everybody, but I'm just saying I do think a general principle should be finding something that you just want to do rather yeah. than something you feel obliged to do. Yeah. So especially if it's the first thing that you're doing in the morning that you're not waking up feeling like you're punishing yourself with this thing you have to do. Yeah. And you know, it's, it was funny because we just said, what did I do this morning? Like my first um, pang of guilt was, well, I got up kind of late and I keep feeling that I should get up earlier. <laughs> but, um, it's so nice to wake up without an alarm, you know, for Far too much of my life, I would wake up to an alarm clock brutally early in the morning, especially like imagine January, February in England. You know, we're at a high latitude here and winter mornings are dark and not very inviting. And now I actually love that privilege of being able to wake up more gradually, to recall my dreams, to see if I can extract any meaning from them and really just ease gently into the world rather than that brutal alarm clock, panic, rush, hurry, frenzy and out the door in the mornings. So I realise that sounds extremely privileged of me and I do appreciate my good fortune, especially because my life didn't used to be like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good entrance point into sort of going back in time to give you a chance to tell some more of your story. Um, I would love for you to start by telling the story of what you call the obituary exercise. Will you tell that story? I would love to. Yeah. And in case anybody's thinking, ooh, that sounds a bit morbid, um, <laughs> please bear with me. It's actually much more uplifting than it might initially sound. Um so this was an exercise that I did 
heck, it must be coming up to 20 years ago now. And um, just to put this in a bit of context, um, I had been a management consultant for 10 or 11 years, and I think I'd known from day one that it wasn't really what I wanted to do for a living, but I thought it would be a useful stopgap until I got that really, you know, until I figured out what I did want to be when I grew up. But unfortunately, um, 11 years later, I was still in my stopgap. Um, it's very easy to end up in that salary trap. And so every time I would think, oh, I'd really love to be doing something that feels more fulfilling to me, I'd look at sal salaries in the nonprofit sector and I think, oh, my God, I can't live on that. Um, and so I'd end up stuck where I was. And as time went on, um, this really started to take a toll, this effort of pretending to be something on the outside that I really didn't feel I was on the inside. It's quite stressful. It's quite a big emotional overhead <laughs> trying to put on this this happy shiny professional face every day when then when that's not who you feel you are so um in desperation i turned to self-help books and particularly on this occasion i was reading stephen covey's seven habits of highly effective people that great classic and one of his seven habits is to begin with the end in mind and he suggests doing this with like the ultimate end in mind, that you picture your own funeral. Again, bear with me, please don't switch off listeners, um, <laughs> that you picture your own funeral and imagine what people would say about you and write two versions of it, what you would want them to be saying about you and what they will actually say about you if you carry on living your life as you are. And... So one evening after a particularly tough day at the office, I, I sat down and I did this exercise and I can still remember how I felt as I was writing the sort of fantasy obituary, what I wanted people to say about me. Um, it, it wasn't specific. Um, it didn't talk exactly about what I would do. It was much more about how it would feel to be me. And it was such a contrast with what I was actually feeling in my life at that time. Um, I wanted to feel authentic, like I had integrity in my life, that I was showing up fully as myself in every aspect of it, rather than pretending to be something that I wasn't. I wanted to feel self-confident, like I had the, the capacity and the confidence to really go out there and live life to the full. I wanted to feel like I was making the world a better place in some way. I wanted to feel purposeful, like it was about more than just me, that I was connected to some greater purpose. Um, and I can remember as I was writing this, it felt really exciting. It was like I'd opened a doorway into another universe where I was living the life that I was supposed to be living. And Weirdly, it seemed incredibly real. It really did feel like, oh, that's that's me. Mm -hmm. And then, and then I had to write the other version, which was what I was actually heading for if I carried on as I was. And you know, it was nice and it was safe, and it had a, a lot of the things in it that we tend to associate with security and success and mm, impressing our friends and whatever but it felt very flat and gray compared with that amazing technicolor 
emotional spectrum that I'd tapped into just before. So um, I looked at those two versions and <laughs> I wish that I could tell you that I, I went into the office the next day and handed in my notice and, and strode out to, to live a life of purpose and meaning. Um, but I didn't because I wasn't that brave. I was still very attached to a lot of the things that I thought were signs of success. Um, and so it took a while longer but um, actually, it was interesting, just earlier today, I was reading about the subconscious and how powerful it is and how when we set a really clear intention around something, it's sort of like the subconscious takes it and runs with it. Um, I'm actually studying the master key system at the moment. I just started it last week. And so um, for the next six months, every week, I'm going to get a the next exercise in it so that's what I was doing this morning that was all about the subconscious and the conscious and it's saying when you have that intention and a powerful intention the subconscious goes right that's what we want so that's what we're going to have and it makes it happen and that's and this is kind of law of attraction stuff um for better or worse that's what we tend to create in our lives and I the way that I interpret this now looking back on it is that my subconscious really latched onto that alternative vision of my future. And even though it seemed like an impossible gap to bridge between where I was and where I wanted to be, it went, okay, <laughs> that's what you want, that's what you're going to get. Mm -hmm. And so um, over the next few years, um, a number of those things that had represented success and security disappeared from my life. Um, I quit the job. Um, I My significant relationship ended. Um, so I moved out of our house. And, you know, little by little, all of those things that, that I'd always wanted, <laughs> but actually I realize now were trapping me in this sort of gilded cage. Um, those things melted away. And... You know, I'm sure my poor mother was having sleepless nights and <laughs> probably most of my friends thought I completely lost the plot. But actually, my interior, like my subjective experience of that was that life became magical and really exciting and all kinds of cool new friends with new ideas that I'd never even thought about before started to show up in my life. And it really did feel like I was taking my first nervous and trepidatious steps down a very exciting and beautiful path and I suppose I've um never never stripped well I would say I've never strayed from that path but you know I, I've continued um with varying degrees of commitment and determination down that path ever since there was really no going back from that point onwards yeah, there's a couple of things that are so interesting in this to me. First of all, you were in your early 30s, right, when this happened? Yes, I was. Yeah. Yeah, about 33. Yeah. And so I think, first of all, I think that's interesting because there's, I think, a story that we collectively tell ourselves that, you know, big life changes, adventures, quitting the job, that that's something to do when you're younger, right? And so there was something very relatable to me about the fact that you weren't 22, right, at this point. Um, and I also think that there's something really interesting about just the way that you describe what you were doing before. It wasn't 
awful. It's sort of the trap of something that's good, but not great. And like speaking to the difficulty of it's relatively easy to walk away from something that's horrible, whether that's a relationship or a job, not to say that it's always easy, of course, but I think that it's much harder to walk away from something that's not horrible, but also not great because you think, well, this is at least safe. It's at least comfortable. I'm not miserable. And I feel like it's really easy to get stuck in that self-talk of what's wrong with me that I can't just be happy with this. Like I have all of these things and, you know, I should just be grateful for this and not want anything more. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I'd love to respond to both of those points. I'm on the age thing. Um, certainly when I started taking these leaps into the unknown, I was wondering, like, have I lost the plot? Um, you know, I seem to be walking away from, you know, this fantastic relationship and the career and the paycheck and all of that. Um, but apparently it is actually um, a process that um, the um, psychologist, um, CJ, uh, CG Jung first identified as individuation, that we reach that point where our brain has actually finished maturing um, and we reach a point where we start to ask ourselves the big existential questions like, who am I and what am I here for and what's life all about? And um, so I thought I was like unique in that. And then I, turned, I found out it's actually quite a well known and quite well documented phenomenon. And um, I do think those are quite important questions to be asking. And I wish a lot more was talked about in schools around this, because I think those are really the questions that make the difference between a, a wonderful and fulfilling life and a kind of ho-hum life. And then um, on the, the other side of it, um, the stories, uh, now of course I've forgotten it, <laughs> you were saying the stories that we tell ourselves, was that it? Yeah, about, um, you know, when something is good, but not great, and well, I should just yeah. stay with this, that type of thing. Yeah, and I do remember around that time, there was a lot of questioning of, you know, am I just being greedy, um, wanting more out of life, thinking that there's something better and juicier? And um, I think what really brought home to me that something had to change was I can remember a particular morning standing on the train platform, one of those dark winter's mornings, um, with cold, crappy weather, probably raining. And just this phrase going through my mind, like, my soul is dying. I just really felt something was like on its last legs. And that if I didn't take some radical steps to change my life, that actually something very important <laughs> was at death's door. It really almost felt like a matter of life and death. So I had to just trust that feeling. I, I couldn't I couldn't tolerate that sense of, yeah, on the outside, everything looks perfect. But on the inside, I feel like I'm shriveling and dying. This is just horrible. Um, something has to change here. So I think when we've got those strong intuitive feelings about something, I reached a point where I had no choice but to do something about it. I just couldn't live that way any longer. Mm -hmm. It's just too painful. 
Yeah, I'm familiar with that, that it has to get to the, because you said before, you know, you wish you would have been brave enough the next, the day after doing the obituary exercise to walk in and give your notice. Obviously it took, you know, as you said, years, which is refreshing to hear as well, because I think we also like the idea of, you know, oh, I just changed my whole life overnight, which is, I mean, maybe that happens for some folks, but I think that they're outliers. And so this idea that it takes time for me, I wish this wasn't the case, but I've never been able to make a really significant change until I've reached sort of the tipping point where the pain of not making the change is outweighing whatever the fear is, which what you just described sounds exactly like that, where you get to the point where you're like, I'm in so much pain not making this change that it's no longer, I have to just do it. Beautifully said. That is exactly it. Because I think one of our things that we do as humans is that we're always doing this sort of cost-benefit analysis, uh, mostly subconsciously, but we're, um, and change is really hard. And I, I think that even when our heart knows it wants change, the brain doesn't like it because really the job of that conscious mind is to keep us safe. And it's like, oh, let's not change too many things because it might be dangerous. And doing things exactly the way we're doing them has kept us alive so far. So, you know, let's not go stepping into the unknown. Yeah, it might be better, but think of all the risks. And so I think we do have that um, that very strong voice that has its role. It's trying to protect us, but it can also seriously hold us back from the life that's really waiting for us, that life that's wanting um, to be lived. Um, and I absolutely agree with you about the overnight transformation. I mean, yes, I actually, I do remember one very specific literal overnight transformation, uh, which was when I chose to leave um, my relationship of 11 years. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified, because all of our friends were um, couples. Maybe I knew one divorced person. Um, But, you know, I just didn't know what lay outside of my bubble of cozy coupledom. And um, so this was, it was really scary. So to actually have come to the decision and to follow through on it and to wake up the next morning and sort of like crack open one eyelid and find out if the world was still turning and see if the sun had still risen and to find out that actually life had just got so much more exciting because I'd done something deeply scary and lived to tell the tale, which suddenly opened up massive new vistas of other things that had previously scared me. And now I was like, wow, well, if I can do that and survive, then what else can I do? Mm -hmm. So actually that was like a quantum leap in my journey. But then, of course, there are still wobbles after that. There are times when you wish that you had the security of a relationship and a steady income and all of those other things that so often keep us small. Um, And a lot of it, um, I'm going to come back to my journal, actually, that a lot of the work sort of with a capital W that I was doing around that time was creating a new story about who I was and what was important to me. You know, I was kind of embarrassed that I'd spent 11 years or longer, actually, if you include my degree and the, the time before that, all those years changed, chasing this this rainbow of materialistic um, success, thinking that that was going to make me happy. So 
I'd found that story wasn't working for me. So I really needed to craft a new narrative. And I, and I think, um, you know, often change is easier when we have something exciting and new to replace the old. Yeah. You know, if you're trying to stop a bad habit, if you're trying to, oh, I don't know, quit smoking or overeating, you sort of need, in a way, a new thing to fixate on that feels even better or, or at least gives you some of the satisfaction that the old habit gave you. It's about trying to create good addictions rather than bad ones. Because otherwise, if you just try and stop the old habit, then there's, you know, that smoking shaped hole in your life or that food shaped hole in your life that makes you really miss how things were before. So um, certainly in my experience, it works a lot better to create something new and exciting and aspirational to move towards and create a new story around you and that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was my experience completely. I quit drinking and started running on literally the same day and I had never been an athlete at all or done anything even remotely like that. And I mean, even at the time I was aware that it was sort of a transfer of addiction, but that was the best that I could do at the time. And just removing this huge thing from my life, I would not have been successful if exactly to your point that if I didn't have something else, at least in the transition time to focus on to then get me to the point that I could do whatever this sort of deeper, harder emotional work was, you know, around that topic, I definitely wouldn't have been able to to do it without having something else. So yeah, I, I think that the, I think that's really good advice. I also think back to what you were saying about um, the sort of overnight change that happened of leaving your relationship. I think there's sort of a really important both and thing that you're saying of like, I don't know, We with making change, I think that we want to believe that it has to be easy in order to do it or it has to feel 100% right. I mean, I obviously don't know how you were feeling when you left that relationship, but I'm sure it, there were complicated feelings. Something can be the right decision and also be sad. It can be what you want to do yes. and it can also be hard. You can make the decision and then a week later regret the decision. And like, I think that it's been really helpful for me to sort of consistently force myself out of this all or nothing black and white mentality of thinking the only way I can make a change is if it 1000% feels good and there's nothing about it that feels hard because that, I mean, in my experience, that's never, ever happened, whether that's jobs I've left, yeah. businesses I've stopped doing, relationships that I've left, literally everything, even if it's the right move, it's often something where I'm feeling a lot of self-doubt and questioning it and that those can exist at the same time. Like you can take action and still not even be be 100% happy about it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And um, I suppose when, when I give talks about the change that I've made in my life, I quite often get people asking me about, you know, how do I know when it's time to make that move? And it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a, you know, responsibility for me to try and answer that question. Um, and I would say that in my life, a lot of those big decisions have often felt like 4951 um, and often flip-flopping like from one day to the next about whether it's the right thing i i have generally reached a point where i feel sufficiently certain that it's the right thing to do and you know what i i think we sometimes get too hung up i certainly have done on making the right decision with like capital letters and I'm not sure that there's necessarily such a thing as a wrong decision. I think we can really hold ourselves back by being afraid to make a mistake. And yeah, I've made loads of mistakes, but 
so long as you're still alive at the end of them, there's usually the option to fix it to some extent. And um, even if it turns out not to be the most optimal course of action, it's what's that phrase like you win or you learn yeah. <laughs> you know either it goes as you hoped or or you learn hey oh well I thought that job was going to be great but you know what <laughs> not so much but I, I liked these bits of it and I didn't like those bits and I had to try it to find out so um you know we we life never takes a straight line course does it like from from here to success or to anything else really it's always a bit more meandering than that and this is why, again, I've, I've lightened up a lot, partly thanks to my Zen Osho cards, uh, but lightened up a lot about, um, about life, generally. I used to take myself so seriously. Yeah. And some, I, I think that was actually, like, coming back to the end of my career and the end of my relationship and all of that, um, when I was going through school, I had the kind of intelligence that gets rewarded by the conventional education system. Yeah, me too. I can relate yeah. to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I was really good at passing exams and um, it becomes quite addictive to get that pat on the back and the approval of parents and teachers. You know, it's very nice. Um, but it can also, I think, become a bit of a curse because it can make you afraid to do things where you're not going to get the pat on the back or where you run the risk of failure or where people might even criticize your choices. And so for me to actually go through some spectacular, in quotes, failures and to realize that they're perfectly survivable and that, um, you know, the people that mind don't matter and the people that matter don't mind, um, (laughs) that really was tremendously liberating for me. And now I try and focus less on whether I'm going to succeed at something and more on whether it just feels right to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And um, and even if the end result isn't quite what I anticipated, well, hey, it's all part of life's rich tapestry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're reading my soul. I completely relate to that. <laughs> the, the last thing that I wanted to say before we move on a little bit, this idea of the obituary exercise or even just like thinking forward to your own death is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I know that this is a cultural thing. There's plenty of cultures that are a lot more comfortable with death than, I mean, at least I know we are here in the US. But I think that for me, it's been really helpful to think about it because it's kind of like the flip side of what you were saying of the benefit of not taking yourself so seriously. That's something that I definitely need to work on. And also that things do matter and what you do every day does matter because you don't have eternity, right? Like I, I, something that, um, I don't know if I read this somewhere or heard you say it, this, this question of if I repeat today's actions mm-hmm. 365 times, will I be where I want to be in a year? And like, yes, that's so powerful because like so, oftentimes I just sort of treat days as throwaway things, right? Like, oh, okay, whatever, you know, the days go by or the weeks go by, or sometimes you turn around and like, I don't really even remember January through May of last year when I was doing my end of year sort of 2017 review. I was like, what did I do for those five months? And this idea of like what you do every day does stack up. It does lead somewhere. And whether that's somewhere that you're proud of and excited about or not, 
in a lot of ways is really up to you, right? This sort of like personal responsibility. And I don't know. So I, I love that question that, that you've posed about, okay, well, these are the actions that I spent today doing. If I did those 365 times, is that where I want to be? And if not, what has to change? Absolutely. And that was definitely one of the things. Um, that's why I think that obituary exercise actually does have to be framed like that. Um, because I know that when I did it, it really gave me a major kick up the backside and reminded me that I am not immortal. That, uh, you know, one day I will be in that casket. And so if I was going to do something more um, fulfilling with my life, then I, I needed to get cracking. And um, so I, I think it's really important to look at it that way. Um, and I absolutely agree with you about the accumulation of those choices that we make every day. It was Albert Camus who said, um, life is the sum of our choices, which to me is one of those quotes that sort of stops me in my tracks. And you sort of go, whoa, <laughs> that's, that sounds like quite a heavy responsibility. But actually, I think this ability that we as human beings have to make choices is is absolutely central to what it means to be a human. Um the choices we make, even the ones that are seemingly very trivial, like how we're going to spend a day, are really important. And actually, when I was um, teaching my class on courage last year at Yale, um, one of my central ideas is if we can keep pushing ourselves outside our comfort zones on a daily basis, then at the end of a lifetime, the cumulative effects of that is that we end up in a very, very different place from where we are if we just always take the path of least resistance. And of course, you know, we're not feeling brave every single day. We don't always have that kind of energy. And there are days when actually taking quiet downtime and either marinating or sitting on the sofa, depending on how you want to describe it, you know, that has its place too. Um, but I think that idea of effort consistently applied um, is it's very that power of accumulation is a very powerful concept. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so well said because again, I think that it's easy to get stuck in this idea that they have to be huge things that we do or nothing. And I think it's very easy to undervalue the power of small actions taken over time. Like for me, I think about running. That's the clearest example of this. That yeah. and I literally could not run for two minutes when I first started. And people who have been listening to the show have heard me talk about this a million times. But it's like. And yet doing what seemed to be a, you know, an almost insignificant amount of training, right? Consistently three times a week, four times a week, you know, six months went by and I ran a half marathon. And like that was such a good reminder for me that these, like, we think that the tiny things don't matter. I think about this with writing too, that, okay, if I, a hundred words is not that much, but eventually a hundred words at a time is a book or is, you know, in these things that they say, it sounds so silly for me to say it because obviously, and yet I often forget on a day-to-day -day basis that it doesn't have to be some huge monumental thing in order to move forward or to make change happen. Absolutely. And as an addition to that, I know that if I'm procrastinating a bit around something, if I can persuade myself, um, like I don't really run anymore because my, my knees and ankles weren't loving, weren't loving me for it. Um, but 
if I didn't feel like going out for a run, I would persuade myself, well, I'll just go out and run for five minutes. And, you know, of course, by the time you've like got your running shoes on and your kit and you get out the door, you're like, oh, well, actually, this is this is OK. And of course, you're not going to go out just for five minutes, haven't gone to all that trouble. But I think if you can sort of trick that voice in your head that's saying, oh, you're feeling a little bit tired. Why don't you just like sit on the couch and read a book instead? Um, if you can trick that voice into we're only going to do five minutes, all right? Um, then I think once you're out there, you're often literally running. And um, yeah, so I, I think we could definitely use those um, those mental processes to our advantage once we know how they can trip us up with our best intentions. Mm-hmm. So going back to, you know, the time when over those couple of years, when you left that relationship and eventually left your job and your home and were making those changes, where in that time frame did the idea of rowing solo across the Atlantic, when did that come in? <laughs> it's not an obvious career move. Is right. It? It's not, I'm going to leave this job and then I'm going to get this rowboat and I'm... <laughs> well, um, so after I... Um, after those transitions, I stumbled around for a bit, um, trying to trying on different like coats for size, different jobs. And so I was a photographer for a while. I was an organic baker. I very nearly bought a boat that I was going to do up as a coffee shop. I was sort of trying out various things, none of which really stuck. But all of those projects taught me something about what I enjoyed and what I didn't. Um, then the next project after that was I went to Peru for three and a half months um, to travel around, explore. This was really the first time I'd ever backpacked. This was a huge step outside my comfort zone. Um, very sketchy Spanish. I had a, a two-week crash course in it. Um, but um, I came back from especially spending time in the mountains there and hearing from the local people how much the glaciers had retreated in their lifetimes I was like, oh, what's going on here? And this was back in 2003. And I think we sometimes forget just how much climate change has come into general awareness since then. So um, I got back home to England and started doing some research. And the more I read, the more horrified I became, not just about what's happening to the earth, but also about the fact that I'd been so oblivious to it for so long. And so I... Um, I'd sort of found my calling. I was a, a woman with a mission and I desperately wanted to do something to raise awareness of our envir environmental challenges and especially to inspire action on them. But I had no idea how I was going to do that. Um, I was really just a burned out management consultant um, with no particular profile or platform. And then um, around that time, I met uh, a guy who'd rode across the Atlantic uh, with his mother, um, of all people. I was like, wow, someone's mum can row across the Atlantic. <laughs> it rather disrupted my view of what it took to be an adventurer because it did seem that most adventurers like had beards and this guy's mum presumably didn't. Um, but it still didn't really fall into place until about six months later um, when, again, I, you know, I was just sitting with this burning question of, okay, I've got the mission, but what am I going to do to actually help this cause? And um, this idea just literally popped into my head when I was driving along one day. And it was just like, you know how to row, Roz, you know, 
how hard can it be to row across oceans <laughs> and uh, and use that you know use that as your platform use your blogs and your talks and your books to to talk about these issues that you really care about and I was like oh, brilliant that's perfect that's exactly what I'm going to do and then then the brain got involved didn't it and the brains go oh no that's a terribly bad idea I mean you've never been to sea before and yes you know how to row but you know there's a bit of a difference between rowing on a nice flat river with eight other people in the boat and uh, rowing alone across oceans so we had a bit of a, a debate between head and heart for a while but um, eventually heart managed to persuade head that it was a good idea and so uh, we were off. I started making the mother of all to-do lists um, about everything that I would need to read and um, talk to people about and buy and raise money for and all the training courses I would need to do and all the physical training that I would need to do. And it started to look frighteningly like a plan. And um, I suppose that was, I was committed so of all of the things on your to-do list and as you started checking off the, you know, these sort of like practical and sexy steps to make this happen, what was the one thing that you did or the first thing that you did that really made it feel real that you were like, oh, this, I'm doing this, this is happening? I think a really important step was telling my mother. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Didn't go down too well. Uh, um what were you telling your mother and, and how did that go over? Um, well, I mean, it's happened a bunch of times, but mostly when I got into long distance hiking, which for our Ooh. family, I mean, the most outdoorsy thing my parents have ever done is eat dinner on a patio, right? Like <laughs> I grew up um, in Manhattan and in London, actually, I lived in London for a while. And so I've only ever lived really in very big cities until now living over in Oregon. But, you know, and I told her that her city child, right, who had never gone camping one night ever was going to go on a solo, you know, like multi hundred mile backpacking trip and she was supportive but not thrilled <laughs> we should let's <laughs> let's say that and she was very terrified for me I think it's a mother's job to worry mm-hmm. and maybe it's our job to make them worry um you know I um <laughs> my mum almost ignored the idea actually she uh, sort of went hmm and uh, nice weather we've been having recently <laughs> I was like, did you hear what I just said? Um, But um, actually, bless her. uh, When she saw that I was absolutely determined to see this project through, she came and stayed with me for a while on the south coast of England, which is where I was based while I was getting ready, and massively helped me out. And over the years, she's been an absolute trooper. Um, She's just been so supportive. And um, I'm so grateful to her, actually, for recognizing that trying to stand between me and something that I clearly had to do um, wasn't wasn't going to help. And and the best she could do was to was to support me. And I, I think also it really helped to get her really involved with it, because it gave her less time to worry. And also, I think gave her a greater sense of agency, um, with it. She could see the boat as it took shape and knew that I was being really diligent in making sure that I had all the safety equipment, that I had enough food, um, all of this stuff. So that's uh, <laughs> that's my recommendation to anybody breaking tough news to mothers is, you know, get them as involved as you possibly can. Um, so, um, sorry, your question about what was the, uh, the first thing, uh, I told my mother, but I also got on the phone to the guy who'd read the Atlantic with his mother and said, um, 
So, Dan, I've decided um, I'm going to row the Atlantic. Uh, what should I do? And he said, well, there's the um, Ocean Rowers Weekend. Who knew there is such a thing uh, that was going to take place down in the southwest of England, um, as luck would have it, just a couple of weeks later. So um, I headed down to Devon. Um, at that point, I think there were about 200 people in the world had rowed across an ocean, uh, mostly pairs and fours, um, but some solos as well. And about about half of them, about 100 people were at this weekend down in Torquay. So um, I had a fantastic weekend, had loads of conversations, drank far too many beers, came back with a terrible hangover and uh, lots of phone numbers for people to follow up with um, to find out more about it. So this was a big part of my preparation was to really try and learn from other people's experiences, uh, to stand on the shoulders of giants and learn from those who'd gone before. Mm-hmm. Um, So it was fun um, approaching things that way. Got to meet some really colourful characters um, and also learned a whole lot about what to do and what not to do. So I think that's always useful when embarking on some harebrained new scheme. In the lead up to it, were there any either practical obstacles or personal fears that almost made you decide not to do it? I think money's always a big one, isn't it? I find nothing can undermine determination quite as much as looking at your bank account and seeing it dwindling to zero or veering into the red. Um, I know I certainly had sleepless nights while I was getting ready for that first voyage when I was stressing about how I was going to pay the boat builders. Um, so that was that was a big worry. But um, I think fortune often does favour the bulls. I don't want to say it always does. <laughs> don't sue me. Um, but it just seemed that when I was really wondering if if this was what I was supposed to be doing, that something good would happen, uh, some more money would show up, or I'd get a big donation of some, some product um, that would reassure me that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and yeah, just, I think a lot of succeeding is just not giving up. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's and that's it's funny because that's one of the things that we don't want to hear, right? Because it sounds like, well, yeah, obviously, but that really is the answer. It's just repeatedly not quitting day after day. Like that's the way that you do something. Like there's no secret. It's just you don't quit, and then the next day you don't quit again, and eventually, <laughs> you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, it's it really is that simple. In fact, it almost. Um, have you seen The Martian, the Matt Damon film? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. This might fall a bit flat then, but. Um, this guy is marooned on Mars and you know, just one thing goes wrong after another. You know, he wasn't meant to get marooned and he's trying to figure out how to survive. And he talks about you just keep like problems come up and you just keep solving problem after problem after problem. And you solve enough problems and you get to come home. So, you know, I you just keep solving problems. I think most of life is about solving problems and keeping on going regardless. Mm-hmm. And um, actually... Um, Winston Churchill, our British Prime Minister from the Second World War, came up with so many great quotes. And one of them was, uh, success is the ability to go from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And and like expecting that that's going to be the case with something like this. Like, I think that it's very, I've thought about this a lot in the context of hiking, that 
it's really easy to romanticize doing a big adventure like this. This is, you know, even, you know, reading your books or, you know, looking at photos or the documentary or any of these things, like it looks really sexy and wonderful from the comfort of my own home, right? And it's very easy to sort of convince yourself that it's going to be this idyllic experience and even thinking, well, sure, it's going to be hard, but thinking that something's going to be hard and then actually having to go through the agony of how lonely it is and how painful, like it's not the same. And so it's, yeah, the, the, this idea of it's, I mean, it's going to be miserable at some points and like having to understand that. You know, I wish we'd had this conversation before I set out on the Atlantic. <laughs> I was actually, I mean, this sounds so ridiculous in retrospect, knowing what I know now. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, that I think I had this sort of magical thinking going on that because I was out there to raise awareness of environmental issues as this sort of champion of mother nature, that somehow I was going to have like a lovely smooth crossing. Nothing was really going to go wrong. Mother nature was going to be good to me because, you know, I was going in to fight for her cause. And of course, <laughs> as you know from the, the documentary, it did not turn out at all that way. It was the worst possible year that I could have chosen to be on the Atlantic in terms of just atrocious weather, leading to loads of my equipment breaking. And I spent a lot of that first voyage just being incredibly indignant about that. I was like, but but this isn't supposed to be happening. Like, Ocean, look, just stop being so mean. Like, <laughs> you're not being nice and I'm out here like to help. And I spent a lot of time fighting reality. And of course, reality has a nasty habit of winning. And eventually I, um, well, I would say on that voyage, I learned how to cope with the ongoing drama of things just going badly. Mm -hmm. um, and it was probably fully 10 years later that I had one of those little aha moments and went, oh, if it had all gone really smoothly, I would not have become the person that I am now. Like I wouldn't have been put to the test. I wouldn't have had to find those reserves of strength and courage and determination to keep on going if it had all been a breeze. So actually, I went from a point of just accepting that it had all gone to crap to actually being grateful for that um, because it really was the greatest character building experience of my life, meaning it absolutely sucked at the time, but, but it was great when it finished. Mm -hmm. Can you give some of the specific examples of the many things that went wrong? Um, well, I was very disappointed, to put it mildly, um, to get tendonitis in my shoulders within two weeks of the start. I'd been training for up to 16 hours a day on the rowing machine. Oh my um, God, that sounds so boring. Oh it, was so, it was beyond boring. I mean, it was absolutely catatonically boring. Um, and But at least when I'd been doing the training on the rowing machine, well, I thought this will help me not get a sports injury once I'm actually in the boat. That theory did not work. Um, also, at least when I was on the rowing machine, I had music to listen to. Um, once I got onto the boat, I did have a stereo, but for the first month, uh, the weather was very overcast and all of the electronics on my boat were powered by solar panels. And I didn't have enough electricity for anything other than the absolute necessities of GPS and water maker and satellite phone. So no stereo. 
And then like after a month, the sun came out and I'm, yippee, like last I can have some music. And about two days later, it stopped working. And I looked at the insides and it had all rusted. I was like, damn it. So for the three and a half months that it took me to do that first crossing, I was really very much alone with the voices in my head, with my demons, um, which I would say was actually like even beyond the the tendonitis, the saltwater sores, the broken oars, everything else. I think the psychological side of it was absolutely the hardest for me. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, being in pain didn't help. Um, that really takes the shine off your mood, um, and. It was kind of like Vipassana on steroids, I suppose. You know, it really was just me alone with my own thoughts, which um, was not at all a comfortable experience. But again, in retrospect, one that I'm very glad to have had because I now have no fear of that. I I explored myself a lot, um, maybe more than is healthy, um, and I found that I was pleasantly surprised by some of the things that I found out, um, some of the limits that I could transcend of boredom and exhaustion and all of those things. Um, And there were some other things that I couldn't change. Like I had planned to row for 16 hours a day and I just couldn't make myself do it. And for a while, I gave myself a really hard time. Like, you lazy cow, why can't you do those last four hours? And then I sort of reached the point where I went, oh, come on, (laughs) you're rowing 12 hours a day and you've been out here for over three months. I think you can give yourself a break. And just learn to be a bit kinder to myself and a bit more forgiving of, you know, let's not call them faults, let's just call them features. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. (laughs) And that sort of self-acceptance really does... Uh, lighten the psychic load of of being alone. Mm-hmm. Will you talk me through what a typical day would look like? Yeah. Um, so um, I would wake up assuming that I'd slept, which wasn't always easy. Um, so I'd be in the sleeping cabin in my sleeping bag. Um, the boat's constantly tipping. So uh, you're moving around a lot during the night. It's often more of a doze than a sleep. Um, when I first woke up, it would be like first light, like very early morning twilight. My first thing would be to turn on the GPS to see where I'd gone overnight. And sometimes if the winds and currents were in my favor, it would be a yippee. And other mornings, not so much <laughs> when I might have gone sideways or sometimes backwards, although it usually wasn't a surprise if I was going backwards. It would more likely be a weather system that had set in for several days. So I turn on the GPS, um, write in my logbook while I was eating a snack bar, um, where I was, how many miles to the finish, uh, check the state of the batteries, stick my head out of the hatch, have a look at what the wind was doing, just like write in the logbook all of these various facts and figures about what the state of play was. Then um, I would get out onto the deck to do my first rowing shift of three hours. Um, And I'd stop for 10 minutes in each hour to have a a bite of food. And then after three hours, I'd have my second breakfast, (laughs) which would be um, oatmeal. 
Um, I had a little camping stove. Sadly, on the Atlantic, that broke as well. Cold oatmeal, not that great. Not that great, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Cold freeze-dried meals, even worse. Um, You must be quite familiar with those if you do long-distance hiking. And um, yeah, they definitely work better with hot water. Um, So four shifts of three hours altogether during the day. with an hour off in between, during which I would do a bit of maintenance or maybe grab a quick nap or move food supplies around if need be. I also grew my own bean sprouts on board, so I would tend to those. They needed rinsing with water a couple of times a day, Um, but well worth it for having some really healthy, fresh, crunchy vegetables. Um, And then by the time I'd finished doing my four shifts of three hours, it would be a couple of hours after dark. Um, my favourite moment of the day was um, sitting out on the deck after all the rowing was done, brushing my teeth and looking up at the stars, which, as you can maybe imagine, so far away from light pollution. I don't know what it's like in Oregon, but certainly in the middle of the Pacific um, or the Atlantic, the stars are absolutely incredible, seeing the whole Milky Way. Um, And then I would go into my cabin and I would type up my blog post for the day and add a photo and then try and persuade my satellite phone to maintain the connection for long enough for me to upload it into the ether uh, to be posted onto my website Um, and then gratefully collapse into my sleeping bag. Yeah, that's... I mean, it's, it's so intense that I can't I, I, like this. This again, it's so easy to romanticize, you know, because you have these lovely pictures, right? And these, but it's it really is just hour after hour after hour of doing a hard thing that's monotonous, and then doing that for what was it, 103 days? I think you said yes, oh my God. exactly. Yeah, it's a lot of it is incredibly mundane. Uh-huh. I mean, a lot of it is about maintaining the body because. That's essential to the adventure, you know, trying to take care of any bits that are inflamed or sore, Um, making sure that you're hydrated and eating enough. A lot of it is about bodily functions and it doesn't get much less glamorous than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's a lot in common with with everyday life. In fact, I was once giving a talk and somebody asked me this great question. They were like, so when you're a management consultant, you were sitting there in the office hating it. And it seems that when you're on your boat, you were sitting there on the rowing seat hating it. So what was the big difference? I went, oh, well, that's a good question. I said, at least it was my hating it. You know, it was it was my project. And if I didn't love every moment of it, um, at least it had been my choice to be there. And, and at least it was leading it was, somewhere. It was. It was part of a, a much bigger picture. And I... Um, I sort of, uh, maybe not so much on the Atlantic, but later on I evolved what I call my bifocal approach, which is um, having one eye on the vision of what it's going to feel like, either to finish that particular crossing or to know that I did my bit for the environment or, you know, whatever success looks like to you in whatever undertaking you're in the middle of. And then the other eye on what do I need to be doing right now in this moment to get myself a bit closer to that? And deliberately not thinking too much about all of the things. That, so, you know, if I was halfway across the Atlantic, I can remember I was actually quite depressed that day because it already felt like I'd been out there forever. And I was like, 
wow, and I'm still only halfway across. Um, it was it was a bit depressing um, because I thought I was thinking about that whole second half. I was thinking about how ex- exhausted I felt already and then sort of extrapolating that into the future. And, you know, it just doesn't help. And yeah. you can start foreseeing all sorts of disasters and problems and it's good, of course, to pre-plan, you know, especially before I leave shore. I need to make sure I've got absolutely everything I need on my boat, the toolkit, the first aid kit, the food, the water reserves in case the water maker breaks, all of that stuff. That's the time for forward planning. But then once I actually get on the boat, it really, really helps just to take it one day at a time. Because otherwise, if you look at the whole project all in one go, it just becomes completely overwhelming and demoralizing. Yeah, I I get stuck in that a lot too, of sort of that trap of forward projecting, especially when things aren't going well and thinking, I'm so tired, I'm in pain, I'm so miserable. Oh my God, what if I feel like this tomorrow? What if I feel like this the whole time? What if I never don't feel like that? I mean, it's just not helpful. And it's because as you yeah. know, the sort of emotional roller coaster of doing anything like this, it could all change in an hour. You know, like you could be a completely different person like six hours later and feel like this is the best thing in the world. Why did I ever not want to do that? And so it's just something that I'm not, Absolutely. yeah, I'm not great at, but I, I, I try to not be too attached to any one emotional state, like not be so yeah. wrapped up in my own misery and also not be so wrapped up in my own joy. Cause eventually I'm going to feel like shit again. You know? So it's like, absolutely. Uh, well, that's very Zen of you because yeah, you're right. Everything changes. Like the bad times don't last and the good ones don't either. And I would have to remind myself of that. Like when the conditions were really favorable, when the wind and the currents were in my favor, I used to get really super excited and go, yay, at this rate, like I'm going to be in Antigua in, you know, X number of days. And of course, then a couple of days later, the the wind's against me and I'm then proportionately despondent. (laughs) So I found that um, one of the things that really helped me to stay on a more even keel emotionally um, was to try and have one step of detachment from my emotions Um, especially the negative ones. And I think it had probably helped me that when I went to Peru, uh, my objective on that trip was to write a book about my adventures, which meant that when things were going suboptimally, I would be able to tell myself, well, right now, this sucks, but it's going to make a great story for the book. So that gave me a degree of detachment. And I was able to use a similar technique when I was on the boat, or I learned to as I went along, that I would think about writing the book about it or giving speeches about it in the future, thinking this is going to be so much juicier a story with all of these things that have gone wrong than it would have been if everything had just been plain sailing. Um, So I know it's easier said than done, but I did at least get better at catching myself when I was starting to go down that emotional drain, just to sort of go, whoop, let's just stop right there. And if I can't think something nice, I'll just try not to think anything at all for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, again, simple, but so brilliant. So like, especially the last thing you just said about, you know, if I can't think something nice, like I'm not going to think anything at all, just to not get too wrapped up in your own, oh, this has to mean something or like, you can just choose not to think about it and just go along and do the thing. Like you don't have to make everything mean something. And that idea of, you know, oh, I'm, I know that I'm going to write a book about this, that, I mean, that helped me so much. Even just, I was doing essentially like daily 
you know, mini blog posts, let's call them on Instagram on my most recent hike. And I got a lot of questions from people of did, you know, being on social media take away from the experience in any way? Wouldn't it have been better to just be out there and have the experience? And maybe for some folks that's true, but for me, absolutely not. Like having what you said, that level of detachment of writing about it, almost being able to sort of view myself as a character in a story was so unbelievably helpful, especially given the solitude and the loneliness. Like when you're completely alone and don't have anyone to talk to or bounce ideas off of or laugh with or anything, you got to do what you got to do, right? To like maintain some level of mental sanity and writing about (laughs) it was very helpful for me. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And um, I often felt after 12 hours of rowing and, you know, whatever had happened during the day, the last thing I felt like was writing a blog post. But I was always so glad that I did because it really helped me to get that perspective on the day. And even if I'd been completely exhausted and, you know, a bit glum by the end of that last night shift, um, if I could look back at the whole day and go, oh, yeah, but there was that awesome sunrise this morning or wasn't it cool when those dolphins came past or you know whatever it would really help to get a perspective on the day and you know in a way it sounds a bit like um for both of us it was almost a gratitude practice to pick out the bits of the day that had been uplifting for us and to put our attention on those instead of all the things that we'd really struggled with yeah and i mean in some days the gratitude was wow everything was shit and i survived it like sometimes that's <laughs> enough right and I, i'm actually Absolutely. really curious to know because i'm sure you wouldn't have had trouble finding someone to go with why did you decide to go alone Um, it was sort of by default in the end. There were two or three friends that I thought I could um, tolerate sharing a very small boat with for months um, in a very scary situation. Um, But when I started to mention that I was thinking about rowing across an ocean, um, before I'd even got around to inviting them, they were already going, well, you're obviously completely insane. So I took that as a no. Um, So I did end up um, yeah, by default going solo. And I'm actually, in retrospect, I'm really glad that I did. I think it's a profoundly different experience. And I'd be interested to get your take on this as well. Um, first of all, I'm immensely grateful for whoever could potentially have been a crewmate that they weren't because I was pretty much a pain in the neck for (laughs) the time that I was out there. I was, I was not a happy camper. I was really struggling with it. And, Um, I think it would have been extra pressure on me to try and be nice. Or if I didn't manage to be nice, it would have been extra pressure on my poor crewmate. So um, I think that's a good thing. And I I, um, also think the amount of introspection that I was able to do was was great. At least I was only ever irritated with myself, not with whoever else was there. And you do see in the the pairs and the fours that row across oceans, um, even like the best of friends, those little habits, like a certain way of coughing or <laughs> I, I heard about one crew that had a major fight because somebody had used somebody else's spoon. Um, you know, those little things can really grate after a while. Um, so I've never rowed across an ocean with somebody else. I imagine it would be a very different thing. I think sleep deprivation is also a lot harder because typically um, when you've got two or more people on the boat, you do two hours on, two hours off around the clock. So 
you know, by the time you got undressed and got into your sleeping bag, you never and then have to at the other end for your two hours off, get dressed, come back out on deck. You never get more than about 90 minutes of sleep. And I think <laughs> that would not contribute to my my general mental well-being and mm. good mood either. So I'm grateful to have had this as a, a solo experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there is something very powerful about knowing that you're really fine in your own company, that you can be around other people because you choose to be around them, not because you have to be around them. Um, so what, what's what's been your take on that? Um, I mean, well, and uh, my experience in terms of duration of number of days spent alone is very small compared to the months that you have spent over and over doing this. So I certainly can't speak to that. But for me, it was more because I was so new to this activity and like these types of adventures. Um, part of what I was looking for was a stronger sense of resilience and self-reliance. And I was very aware because I was inexperienced that if I would have gone with someone else, my tendency, um, which isn't a great quality, but is to give my power away really quickly that if someone knows more than me, that I, you know, would rely on them too much or let them make more of the decisions. Like there was, I knew that I wouldn't be able to have the experience that I wanted if it wasn't all up to me. There was something really empowering about, okay, I have to find water. I have to decide, you know, yeah. what's going to be a good place to sleep. I have to be in charge of the navigation, like all of these things that I think I would have relied on someone else too much or let them take the lead, which I guess, you know, I don't know, maybe could have been fine, but I certainly wouldn't have gotten what I wanted out of it had I not gone alone. Absolutely. Totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, that was a, a big factor for me as well, actually, that, um, yeah, I tend to be too deferential to other people's expertise on things and doing these things alone has forced me to do things that I would most definitely have tried to delegate if there had been anybody else within a thousand miles. Um, like on the Indian Ocean, when my electrical system went on the fritz, and I absolutely hate working with electricity, um, especially when surrounded by water. But uh, I mean, there's literally nobody else to help. I did have an electrician on the end of the phone, but um, certainly not there on the boat. But my life depended on getting, I mean, literally depended on getting the electrical system working because um, without it, I couldn't run the water maker. And I love that idea from Zen and the Ask Motorcycle Maintenance, one of my favorite books about just sitting with a problem and looking at it from multiple different perspectives. And I think we... We all have a lot more capacity to figure things out if we're just willing to take the time. Um, And yet when we're on dry land or in company, it's very easy just to bring in the experts. And exactly what you just said, that sense of great self-reliance that comes from having tackled a problem and figured it out for yourself, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, as often happened in my case, going, oh, well, I didn't need that piece of equipment anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this idea of creative problem solving, um, is there another example? I mean, it doesn't have to be from the first voyage, from any of them, where something went wrong and you then had to come up with a solution. I'd love to hear about that. Ooh, uh, so many. Um, well, this one's not very technical, but all four of my oars broke before I reached halfway across the Atlantic. Um, <laughs> no big deal, right? You don't, you don't need your yeah. oars. That's fine. 
that's not a good thing. Yes, the non-rowers who don't understand these technical things. Yeah, having four broken oars, not good. Um, so uh, obviously, even by this time, the third one breaks, you're in trouble or going in circles. So uh, it was like, it was not technical and it wasn't pretty, but I looked around the boat to see what I had that I could use as splints. And luckily, I had plenty of duct tape on board. Um, very useful stuff. And so I first of all used a, a boat hook, which is a long pole with a hook on the end. I used that as splints. And then I ran, like the oars just kept on breaking in these very rough conditions. So when I ran out of bits of boat hook, then I used, um, sort of cannibalized one of the oars. Uh, they were hollow carbon fiber tubes. So I could cut a section of it and use that as a sleeve to reinforce uh, one of the less badly damaged oars. And then when I ran out of bits of oar, I had a spare rowing seat and um, with wheels on it. So I, I sawed the wheel axles off that and used those as splints. And luckily managed to just about limp into Antigua just before I ran out of duct tape. <laughs> but it was it was a bit touch and go. Um, so that was just a bit of very ugly carpentry, really. Um, there have been... There have been other things as well, but I, th I think the problem-solving experiences that I had that really made me most proud were when I had a real psychological problem with something and I would have an insight, an aha moment that would allow me to reframe the situation into something more positive. Um, so an example of that would be one day on the Atlantic with this tendonitis and saltwater sores and blisters and all of this. And my inner dialogue was very negative. I'm just like, oh, this is all so uncomfortable and I'm hating this. And um, it was like this real thing about the discomfort that was just bugging me. It was just so relentless. And then I sort of went, oh, hold on a moment. Now I remember that... Um, when I was getting ready for this, when people asked me why I was doing it, apart from the environmental mission, I would say, I want to get outside my comfort zone. And um, of course, getting outside your comfort zone is going to be uncomfortable. So I was like, oh, so my discomfort means I'm actually really succeeding in what I set out to do. Um, great. I'm <laughs> Uh, I should be more careful what I wish for next time. <laughs> but, but for now, I am so far outside my comfort zone, it's not even funny. So um, it was just that that reframe of this is a good thing that I'm uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Rather a bad thing. And so when I had those little moments, I, at the end of a rowing shift, I would run into the cabin and scribble them down in the, the back of my logbook for future reference. And a lot of that really was about just sitting with the problem because I had nothing else to do with my brain while I was sitting there rowing all those hours in the day mm -hmm. and that's why I think actually um boredom boredom can be a good thing you know we're chronically distracted at the moment um with our iPhones and just a constant onslaught of sensory input especially in the urban environment and um I think it's Something that I really felt, and I'd be interested to know if you felt this too, but being in wilderness for an extended period of time with relatively little sensory input really enabled stuff to come out from 
inside, like deep inside me, because I wasn't constantly absorbing stuff from outside, if that makes any yeah. sort of a sense. It's almost like the emotional traffic <laughs> um, can't come in and go out at the same time. So like having that space and that time and that intense boredom actually really gave me time for memories to bubble up, things I hadn't thought about in decades. Um, and also to to really take the time to sit with problems and process them and work them through. And I, I still try and build some of that time, ideally a bit into every day and certainly some into every year. Last summer, I spent three weeks in August up on Holy Isle, uh, which is a little island off the west coast of Scotland that's wholly owned by Buddhists. And you don't have to be Buddhist to go there. I know I seem to be talking about Buddhism a lot, but I'm not actually a signed up Buddhist. Um, there's just a lot I like about the philosophy. Um, so I went to this island and, um, you know, there were other people there, but most of them were on silent retreat, <laughs> uh, which is great. And um, I was volunteering in the vegetable garden. So I'm, I'm there like, getting my hands in the earth for three hours a day. And then in the afternoon, I'd go for a hike over the top of the mountain and taking time to read books and journal and just be really peaceful for a while. And it felt like such a luxury. And um, I know it's often easier said than done. Again, I realize I sound extremely privileged. And believe me, I do appreciate my good fortune. Um, but I think it's so precious to be able to have a little bit of time of quiet and relatively little input and ideally without talking to people, <laughs> um, just to step off the earth for a little while. It's mm -hmm. incredibly restorative. Yeah. So, man, there's so much more that I want to ask you. Um, I'm interested, so like when you were talking before about, um, you know, trying not to take yourself too seriously and like lighten up a little bit, I'm sort of curious about the interplay between that and the intense self-discipline and commitment that it takes to make things like what you've done happen. Like, I don't even know exactly what I'm asking, but I'm interested. I find myself really interested a lot in sort of how we can get to the point where we don't break the promises that we make to ourselves. I think that it's a really common experience to show up for other people and to honor commitments to other people. But this idea when we have a goal that's really self-directed or personal and often uncomfortable, right? As we've talked about this idea of, okay, well then how do you, how do you find sort of that inner strength and self-discipline to, to do that, like to keep that sort of commitment. I don't know if there's anything in there that you want to speak to, but I imagine Absolutely. you have a lot of experience with that. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and I really struggled with discipline at the start of the Atlantic crossing, even though I was so incredibly motivated to do it. And I was hoping to go across <laughs> a lot faster than I did. Um, I was so overwhelmed by the 3000 miles of rowing in front of me that um I started skipping rowing shifts, thinking, oh, well, I can just make up for this later. You know, the, the scale of it was just so mind-boggling that I I sort of broke down. And eventually I reached the point where um, – <laughs> oh, and the other thing that was going on was that I kept switching around my shift patterns. I was like, I must be doing this wrong because I'm sure it shouldn't be this hard. If I could just find the right shift pattern, then I'm sure it would feel easier. And so I was trying all sorts of different things. And in the end, I just went, you know, this, oh, it comes back to what you were saying earlier. This is just going to be hard. 
So, you know, just suck it up, <laughs> get used to it. Um, and the other thing that really kicked in for me at that point was wanting the future me to be proud of the present me and the way that I'd conducted myself. Um, that I wanted to be able to look back on that first crossing and just go, yeah, you know what? I did my best. Um, I, I stuck to the the routine, to the, the schedule, and it was hard, but I can feel really proud of the way that I, that I conducted myself. And I started actually praising myself out loud for that. At the end of each rowing shift, I feel like, especially if I'd struggled, and, you know, my monkey mind would think of so many reasons why I should, like, skive off early on the rowing shift. Um, but if I managed to see it through, i go, like, well done, Rosie, good job. You hung on in there. You didn't want to, but you did it. Um, so it's that sort of, I call it my mental time travel of uh, projecting myself into the future and saying I want to be able to look back. In a way, I suppose it ties in with the obituary exercise. One of my principles of that was I wanted to be able to look back over my life without regrets about the way that I'd spent my time. Um, so on the Atlantic, I wanted my future me to be able to look back and say, yeah, you held it together, you kept the discipline. And I think I also just made it non-negotiable. Um, I'd been through so many arguments with myself about could I use my aching shoulders as, as an excuse to stop the rowing shift early. And all of that debate backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards like little devil on one shoulder and angel on the other going take a rest keep rowing take a rest keep rowing in the end I just went you know I'm just it's e it's just easier to show up and do the four shifts of three hours that's that's just what I'm going to do no debate that's what I'm committing to from now on and it it definitely did lift a mental load mm -hmm. <laughs> it doesn't completely lift it <laughs> but um I think it that those two things the time travel and the it's actually less painful just to do the work than it is to have the ongoing internal debate about whether to do the work. Oh my God, that's so true. I Yeah, I want to underscore that. This idea that it's sort of the decision-making fatigue, right? Or the process of indecision or having to go back and forth. Should I, shouldn't I this? Or that like, just make the, the, the freedom of making a decision, even if the decision means that you have to do something horrible, right? That it's, there's something so freeing in being like, nope, this is what's happening and not like giving yes. yourself that potential escape hatch. Yeah. I think that I also want to underscore something else that you said that I think is really powerful and often undervalued this idea of being your own cheerleader that mm. I don't know, we're sort of taught not to do, I don't know if it's a, a female thing or, you know, don't brag, don't boast, you know, don't have too much of an ego, which of course there's, you know, good advice in there too, but especially doing something hard, especially doing something hard alone, getting in the process of acknowledging, even like you said, out loud, like, awesome, you're doing a great job. Like that was really strong. That was tough. Like that. I think we need that more. We need to be really sort of there for ourselves. Definitely. Um, and yeah, especially when you're on your own. But, you know, often, no matter what our circumstances externally, we can often still feel alone. And um, I particularly like the work of Carol Dweck on mindset and um, the idea being that rather than praising ourselves for actual results or outcomes or for like, absolute traits, like going, wow, you know, Nicole, you're so brilliant, uh, going, Nicole, that you found that process hard and, you know, you, you sat with it and you persevered and to sort of praise the process rather than the outcome. So I would rather cheer myself for 
having done a tough three-hour shift when I didn't feel like it, then I would praise myself for um, ticking off, you know, another 100-mile marker. Mm-hmm. Um, to um, really appreciate the inner qualities rather than the external results of those qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it's most definitely a female thing, I, I would say. Um, never having been a man, I don't know if they have the same frailties that we do and they're just better than hi- better at hiding them. Um, but I, even coming back to the ego thing, I remember reading a distinction that made a lot of sense to me between a big ego and a healthy ego. So if you've got a healthy ego, that sort of implies self-knowledge, an awareness of your own strengths and weaknesses, and uh, an open-mindedness. Like Because you're healthy and comfortable in your own skin, um, you're willing to take other people's views on board um, because you're always trying to improve. You're like, well, if I listen to this person, maybe they do actually have a better insight into this than I do and I can learn something here compared to the big ego, which tends to be this sort of puffed up thing um, that has to be fiercely protected at all costs. And I'm not going to mention a certain name that's jumping into my mind at the moment. Um, <laughs> you don't have to, it's fine. <laughs> Um, But, you know, that we're not tolerant of alternative points of view, that we denounce that as being lies or fake or whatever, because we're not we we don't have that healthy sense of um, Mm self-confidence that we're always in defensive protective mode. So um, I think um, actually and there's something else that I want to say about this, um, which um, I I think has been a very important thing for me because I definitely was brought up in a family where it was good to be quiet and to be polite and respectful, to be a good girl. And it was not good to be too big for your boots or push yourself forward um, or (laughs) sometimes even assertive. And Back when I was going through my personal reinvention in my early to mid-30s, one of the books that had a very profound effect on my thinking was Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And the one phrase in that that absolutely leapt out at me, like with horns and red flashing lights, was um, that we have not just... um, like the power, but almost the obligation to be the grandest version of the greatest vision that you ever had of yourself. I was just like, wow, like that is naked ambition. (laughs) But I realized why, because the context it's in is, um, it's sort of like that Marianne Williamson quote about when we allow our light to shine, we give other people permission to let their light shine too. Mm -hmm. It is really about when we are, absolutely our best selves when we dare to be audacious and ambitious and really step up into that vision we raise the average of everybody like it's not that I win you lose by me being greater I'm making you smaller it's like when I can be my grandest version of my greatest vision I can actually lift other people up as well Mm -hmm. and that really was fundamental to me even having the audacity to think that I could row across oceans and or make any difference to the future sustainability of the planet 
that that really rocked my world. Mm-hmm. And I think as women, we sometimes need that external permission to really let our light shine. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you completely. I'm curious about, um, I mean, you've spoken to your motivations for doing this first row across the Atlantic. I'm always interested mm. in sort of how people then do something again and again, because, you know, then doing another ocean, doing another ocean, of course, they're all unique, but you don't have that sort of first time energy anymore, which I guess maybe is good and also not good. But I'd love to sort of hear what your thoughts and motivations were sort of that kept you doing it again and again. Oh, yeah, yes. It's, I think um, the first one is that in my mind, I'd already committed to doing the three oceans. In my mind, that was that was the goal. So if I had stopped after the Atlantic, which I suppose would have been understandable given how tough it had been, a lot of people would have said, well, that's fine. But to me, it wouldn't have been fine because that would have been leaving the job very much, um, not even half done. Um, I also felt that on the Atlantic, I'd been so busy just trying not to go insane that I hadn't really done as much on the environmental mission as I wanted to. So I definitely, there was a lot more to do with that. And the third big reason was I felt like I'd learned so much on the Atlantic about how not to row across the ocean, (laughs) how not to manage my thoughts, which oars not to use, um, that I really wanted to do the work, um, write the book, give the talks, really go back over that experience, that incredibly steep learning curve and extract from it all the lessons I'd learned and really weave them into the fabric of who I was. Um, Towards the end of the Atlantic, uh, I had definitely started to feel proud of what I was achieving. Um, I was starting to feel like I was an adventurer. My biggest fear setting out had been that I would do something incredibly stupid that would lead to my own premature demise. And I started to dare to believe that I was going to make it safely to the other side because of my own efforts and my ability to cope with like that problem after problem after problem. And um, I was desperate not to leave that version of me, like this embryonic adventurer that was starting to, to emerge. I didn't want to leave her on the ocean. I really wanted to bring her back on dry land. And I was desperately worried that um, when I went back to all the old land-based stimuli, that I would just go back to being the same old me. Mm-hmm. So I, I really, really did the work on um, weaving that into myself. Okay, wait, and, so t- talk to me more yeah. about that. What helped, because I, I relate to this so much, it's almost easy to be a different version of yourself when you're in sort of this vacuum of a really yes. adventurous situation. And yeah. to the point where, I mean, again, I my, my longest experience was 44 days, so not anything like, you know, what you've done, but that even now being home from that feels like it happened to somebody else. Like I feel like it was a different Nicole that did that because it's so unbelievably foreign from my regular sort of comfortable life that I've had a difficult time integrating that. So I I would love to hear how you've managed to do that. Yeah. Uh, And first of all, I'd like to say, let's not underestimate 44 days. I mean, that, that is, that's a long time. I, I don't know if there's that much like marginal benefit of 
like my longest one was five months, uh, 154 days. But I, I'm not sure there's that much marginal benefit. I would say probably the, well, anyway, um, I just really wanted to applaud you for that. And please don't do that woman thing of under estimating your achievements oh no I mean well yeah no I, I I'm sorry that it came off that way what I meant was I mean I guess I don't have the experience of something longer but I my experience doing 44 days the year before I did something that was 26 days and it was such an unbelievably profound difference for me to do the 44 days versus the 26 days that I am I mean that was a badass achievement I'm super proud of that it's more that I can't conceptualize what it would be like to do 100 days to do 154 days that I do imagine that it would be different just given it was so different for me, like less than a month versus just over six weeks that I don't know. And maybe you hit a point of like diminishing, <laughs> like it returns sort of at some point, but it's just that I don't know. I would imagine that not, you know, seeing another person for that long would be an unbelievably profound experience. Uh, well, fortunately, by the time I did the really long voyage, that was my last one. And I'd sort of got the the hang of how to manage my thoughts yeah. by then. But to, to come back to your um, original question, um, I know exactly what you mean because sometimes like when I give these talks and I'm looking at the video on the screen of, of me in the boat and you know it's been seven, coming up seven years now since my last ocean. And so very soon there won't be a single cell in my body if it's true that our cells like turn over um, every seven years at the outside. Soon I won't have any cells that actually have been across an ocean. And sometimes I have to look at the videos and go, uh, yep, yeah, that's definitely me. Yes, I did do that. Because like you say, it does seem like a very different existence. Um, and I don't think that matters. Um, because to come back to that Albert Camus um, quote about we are the sum of our choices, I, the experiences that we go through create who we are. And I, I don't think that we necessarily have to picture ourselves back in the boat or back on the mountain or in the forest to to be that self again. I think we can trust that those thoughts that we've had have rewired our brains in some way, that we, we now know that we've got that capability we know there are certain things that no longer hold fear for us that might hold fear for people who haven't had those experiences. Um, so, uh, you know, maybe me writing the book and giving the talks and really doing that very determined work um, might be over the top, as you might guess from the things I've done. My guiding mantra tends to be if something's worth doing, it's worth overdoing. <laughs> um, but um, I don't. Um, I think it, it does help sometimes to reconnect and I'm fortunate in that my work requires me like with the speaking uh, requires me to put myself back into that place mm -hmm. and to some extent keep those memories alive but I do sometimes find myself thinking am I am I really describing that as it was or have my stories now sort of a, acquired a life of their own? Um, but ultimately, does it matter? Right. It comes back to that idea of it's not so much what happens to us, it's how we choose to interpret and internalize what happens to us, like in every possible sense. Um, you see some people who go through 
terrible things, you know, concentration camp experiences and and somehow managed to find the dignity and the grace to use that as their work, you know, as, as their um, their way to greater understanding of themselves and of the world. And you see other people who have a much less um, challenging existence and yet become a victim of life. And I don't know what it is that necessarily makes us equipped to draw strength from um, adversity versus um, weakness from adversity. I don't know if it's something in our genetic makeup, but I, I do think there's an element of choice there. I think that at least once we're aware of these questions, um, you know, one of the ways that I like to reframe things is, what if this thing didn't happen to me, but it happened for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if everything does happen for a reason, but um, I know it makes me feel better to believe that it does. <laughs> so even when something shitty is happening, if I'm like, well, I know there's some learning that I can extract from this if I look hard enough. Um, and a lot of that is what happens in my journal is this sort of meaning making process. Then it's all sort of grist to the mill. So um, I, I don't think, uh, I don't know if you are worried, but you know, I don't think anybody needs to to worry that they um that that experience just sort of was in its own self-contained bubble. I'm sure that in many ways it has, it has fundamentally changed you. Like literally it has changed how your brain is wired and is also a memory that you can tap back into if you're feeling a bit lacking in confidence. And I'm not talking about you specifically here, but you know, if one is um, in need of, finding some source of strength. I think when we can reach for that most powerful memory that we have of the one incident, and, you know, for some people this might be 40 years ago, but, you know, if they could find some example of a moment when they surprise themselves with their own strength and courage and then build on that. Um, And I I wish that... uh, I wish I could sort of take you on a little like journey through time and for you to meet me, say, back in 1998, um, 20 years ago, when I was towards the end of my time in management consulting. And the conversation that we would be having would be so different. I yeah. was so self-pitying. My self-esteem was so low. I was in a really bad place and all of my sense of worth was contingent on outside things, the size of my house, the success of my partner, um, my clothes, my appearance. It was all extrinsic. I I wish that you could (laughs) really um, have a window into how much I've changed. And, you know, I used to think that I needed to have the courage in order to have these experiences, but it's absolutely the other way around. It's through just having the motivation to go out and things that do things that scared me that I've unleashed the courage you know I've uncovered that courage that was there and latent all the time but it wasn't required so you know, it only emerges when it's required which means that we have to challenge ourselves mm-hmm. um, but 
I could have waited forever waiting for the courage to come along. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, <laughs> it, bring, that brings up sort of yeah. the last thing that I wanted to ask you about. I mean, again, I could talk to you for like the rest of the day, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, this class that you teach at Yale about courage, first of all, that's so interesting to me, just the idea that like, I think that there's what I would consider a false belief that courage is something that you either have or you don't, and that it's not a changeable thing. This idea of courage being teachable or being potentially a skill that you can build on. Um, I'd love to hear if you have sort of maybe one thing to share, either the thing that's been most interesting for you to teach or sort of just around this idea of how to become more courageous, perhaps without, you know, rowing across an ocean. <laughs> Um, Yes, because I realise that's not going to be feasible or desirable for most people. Um, Well, I think um, the the crux of it is kind of what I just said about action leads to courage, not the other way around. Um, Like we're constantly redefining our self-concept of who we are and what we're capable of. And that little like monitor in our minds that's constantly refining that self-concept is really looking at how we behave um also the thoughts that we think but there's definitely something to be said for faking it till you make it I was totally faking it on the Atlantic I was terrified most of the time so people might then ask well okay so I get it that action leads to courage but I'm too scared to take the action so how do I get past that um my theory on this, which is what works for me, my theories are all based on my own experience with a bit of stuff from books thrown in. My theory is that when your motivation is greater than your fear, that's when you're able to move forward and take the action to do the thing that then leads to courage. So in that sort of inequality of needing motivation to be greater than fear, um, you can tackle that on either or both. So my motivation to do something to support the environmental cause was massive. I was so worried, um, almost panic stricken about where we're heading if we don't start taking better care of the earth. I just, I had to do something. I was also very highly motivated by not wanting to be a management consultant anymore. (laughs) I I desperately did not want to go back to the office. so, uh, and there were like multiple other motivations as well. So, the more big, juicy reasons why you can think of that you want to do this thing, the greater your motivation gets. And I think there's also ways that we can diminish our fear. Um, part of it is recognizing that the fear is there to keep us safe. And we have the choice whether we want to let that fear run our lives or not, or whether there's actually something that's more important to us than hanging on, you know, than wrapping ourselves in cotton wool. A friend of mine, when she was thinking about giving up her day job to launch a women's network, um, she was very methodical about this. She wrote down the things that she was most afraid of, like, would she miss her colleagues? What about her finances? What about future career prospects? Um, She made a whole list of the things she was afraid of. And then next to each of them, she wrote down the worst case scenario. And then she said, well, could I deal with that worst case scenario? Like, is that survivable? Can I cope with that? And for all of them, she went, yeah, might not want it, but I could handle it. 
And so she quit her job and set up the Women's Network. Um, so I, I think there are fears often loom a lot larger when we don't turn around and examine them. Yeah. I tend mm-hmm. to imagine like this um, a sort of this cartoon of I'm there and I refuse to turn around to look at the fear and it's casting this like huge sinister shadow on the wall. And then if I actually can find the guts to turn around and look at it, I find you know, it's, it's a bit like the Wizard of Oz, you know, with the little man behind the curtain. Um, you find it's actually a much smaller thing than than it appeared to be in your imagination. Mm-hmm. That when we actually turn around and shine a spotlight on fears, they, they tend to shrivel up quite quickly. Yeah, I, I think that's incredible advice. This, uh, like the power of specificity of actually digging into something and drilling down to what is the actual fear? Okay, what is the worst case scenario? Okay, what skill would I have to develop in order to not have this habit? Like to really get practical, that's been honestly, literally the only thing that has worked for me. Yeah, oh, well, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that, that, um, that my theories uh, resonated. So I knew they worked for me. I'm glad to hear they work for you, which gives me hope that they can really work for pretty much anybody. Um, because I also, again, coming back to being the grandest version of the greatest vision of ourselves, I think especially as women now, and I feel this is a very exciting year to be a woman, um, that we really need to step up into our power to make our voices heard. Um, you know, the guys have done a lot of really, really amazing things, um, and some, things that are really take us down quite a dangerous path so I think as women we tend to be better at heading trouble off at the pass um you know we can sort of see when the toddler's heading straight for the dangerous like drop off or whatever we're quite good at seeing where the current path is leading us going that's not a good one let's see if we can course correct and head somewhere safer And it's time that those practical, sensible, precautionary and yet bold and visionary voices really became part of the general conversation. And I think there are all sorts of very cool things happening. It's great to see a lot more American women going into politics. Um, uh, I mean, Oprah recently um, at the Golden Globes was phenomenal, whether or not she goes into politics. I mean... I'm sure that a lot of women would have been tremendously inspired by her words. Mm-hmm. So um, it is also apparently the year of the divine feminine. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how, how that manifests. But I think on the, on the back of Me Too and all these other things that have been happening, um, it's a cool time to be alive and it's a cool time, especially to be a woman. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so I think that's a good place to wrap up. Um, if you are open to answering some rapid fire questions, that's usually how we sure. answer these. Um, people in the community put forward questions and then everyone in the same season answers the same seven questions. I'll give it my best shot. All right, well, there's no wrong answer. There's only there's only an honest <laughs> answer. Um, so, okay, if you had a completely free afternoon next week all to yourself, how would you most love to spend it? Oh, could I split it between two things? I'd probably uh, want to spend about half of it in the coffee shop with my journal, um, refining my plans for 2018. And the other half, um, English weather permitting, I would love to go out for a long walk along the, the River Thames as it flows through Windsor, which is where I live. That sounds like a lovely day. Mm, I just love getting out into nature. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, all right, the next question, what feels most important to you this year? 
Oh, feminine power. Mm, good answer. What's one place in your town that you'd really recommend people check out if they ever travel there? A favorite restaurant, <laughs> coffee shop, museum, walk, bookstore, park, anything? Too easy. It has to be Windsor Castle. I mean, you can't have a thousand-year-old castle with 500 rooms and not go visit. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> I agree. Um, what's something that's working really well in your life right now that feels easy and vibrant and flowing? Ooh, female relationships. Um, I had a gathering for my 50th birthday last year and brought together a bunch of amazing women from around the world. And the energy generated over that weekend was probably enough to power a large city. It was phenomenal. I've been thinking about that a lot too lately about the power of like specifically chosen community, specifically with supportive women. Yeah. I'm, I'm there and too. Powerful conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. Do it. What's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently would have led you down an entirely different path in your life? maybe my degree subject. Uh, I did law, which was a terrible choice for me. Um, it's very labor intensive and I found most of it extremely boring. I would have loved to have done maybe uh, philosophy, psychology and physiology, which is pretty much mind, body, spirit, but in longer words. Yeah, which is different than law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very different. Yeah. Um, the next question is about books. I know you've mentioned a couple already that I'll definitely put in the show notes, but which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Who? Um, uh, the, one of the books that really started me down this path was Celestine Prophecy, mm -hmm. um, which this whole idea about no such thing as coincidence and conversations being an energy exchange really changed the way that I perceived the world um, fundamentally. Um, another one would be either Ishmael or Beyond Civilization. They're both by Daniel Quinn, um, which really changed the way that I saw the relationship between humans and nature. Um, both of those books are novels, but with very um, philosophical, bracket spiritual underlying messages. Um, and I could mention conversations with God again. Um, yeah, you know, I think I'll, I'll go with that one but if I'm allowed a bonus one I also love The Alchemist yeah oh my gosh it's funny you wanna I'm like you can't see this but I'm nodding because I've read all of these books and loved all of these books so clearly you and I have some bookshelf stuff in common um yeah they're, they're powerful books aren't they they really do change the lens through which you see the world mm -hmm. so the last question if you could leave our community the listeners with one call to action what would it be maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take one of my favorite quotes is by Denham Elliott, um, and he said, surprise yourself every day with your own courage. And I think if you could do that, coming back to the 365 uh, days thing, if you surprised yourself every day for 365 days, or, you know, I'll, I'll let you off the first days of 2018 and just do it for the rest of the year, I think you'll find that you end up in a very different place by the end of the year. Mm -hmm. I love that. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Is there mm -hmm. something in particular you're working on that's really relevant to what we've been talking about? Well, I would love to stay in touch. Um, 
I have a website uh, at www.rozsavage, that's R-O-Z or Z, depending on your preference. Uh, Savage is just like it sounds, um, .com. And I've just started blogging again, and I will be ah, I'm still trying to figure out um, which direction that's going to go this year. I was going to be writing about sustainability, but I feel like I'm actually feeling more inspired to be writing about women. So... Well, let's just say there'll be interesting thoughts evolving there. And I would especially love it if people would be willing to sign up to my mailing list. I post a blog every week um, on a Thursday and I send it out via email. Um, If, like me, you prefer to have a blog arrive in your inbox rather than having to go back to the website. Um, I'm also on Twitter and Facebook as Ros Savage, but really the, uh, the website is a repository of everything. There's the documentary, My Atlantic Voyage there. There are the YouTube videos. There are the podcasts that I've done over the years, uh, links to the books, all of that goodness. Yeah, I will put links to all of that stuff in the show notes. Um, Would definitely encourage folks to join your community and also for sure to just read your writing in general. Your first book was hugely impactful and inspirational for me, specifically, like I said, to say, oh, this is someone else who, I mean, uh, the story that you were telling at the time in your 30s, you know, that sort of busted up the excuse I had that adventure is for people who, you know, took a gap year after school or, you know, (laughs) haven't haven't gotten married yet or, you know, and for me being married in in my 30s and wanting to do adventures and being new to these types of adventures, I found so much emotional support and freedom in your work. So I definitely encourage everyone to check it out. Oh, you just made me really, really happy. And just one other thing that I'd like to add is that I do spend quite a lot of time in the States. I've already got two trips to the West Coast planned this year. So if people want to connect and say hi or invite me to come and speak somewhere, then um, there's a contact form on my website. So give me a shout. Awesome. Thank you so much for telling stories and for your time. Absolute pleasure, Nicole. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this conversation. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could on my own. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Robin. Hi, Robin. Hi, Nicole. So we're going to do a little round of uh, five rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I am. All right. Starting with my favorite ever question. Tell me what you're totally obsessed with right now. I had a feeling this question was coming somehow. Um, But I think I'm totally, one thing I'm totally obsessed with, which is kind of funny, is making my own lattes, like tea lattes and coffee. Um, And I, my mom gave me one of those like foamer, milk foamers um, for Christmas. And so that has been like amazing. Um, and I had, it takes a little practice to figure out which non-dairy milks foam the best, um, because I don't drink dairy milk, but, um, I figured that out and now I love making my own, um, like latte cause it's, and, and I do it with tea or with chai or with, um, mushroom coffee from like four sigmatics. I love their stuff. Um, so yeah, that's been a recent obsession and it's great cause it saves you a lot of money. Yeah. I love that. Also, I feel like I've consistently undervalued how fun it is to have fancy drinks at home. Um, 
my parents got Paul and I um, for the holidays because they were insistent, pick something, we need to get you something. And so we had them get us a soda stream, you know, one of those like water oh, yeah. situations. And um, it's incredible. We just, I mean, especially because both of us don't drink alcohol that it's like, we can make all these fancy sparkling drinks. And my recent uh, sort of obsession that's similar to yours is I think I got this idea, you know, how everyone's obsessed with that bulletproof coffee or bullet coffee or whatever it is where they put butter and I don't know. Yeah. I don't even know what goes in it. It's like <laughs> crazy things. But yeah. um, uh, I, in my black tea, I've been putting coconut milk and a little bit of coconut oil and like af- and doing it in the blender so it blends up and is like really foamy. And I have no idea if there's any actual benefits, but it's so delicious. <laughs> so that sounds now. good. Yeah, it's good. Um, yeah. Okay. What's one thing that you feel like you're seriously kicking ass at so far this year? Hmm. Um, well, it's kind of. I guess two things, but they're kind of interrelated. But I think in general, a school has been going well. I'm, I'm a second year medical school student. So that occupies most of my time and that's been going pretty well. I'm not sure I'd say I'm fully kicking ass, but I'm getting close. Um, and, and then also running has been going really well. I've been logging some pretty high mileage weeks and that's just always a pretty cool feeling to be running a ton of miles and doing well in school. And, um, and yeah, so that's, that's been good. That's awesome. What's your favorite thing to eat for breakfast lately? Um, my favorite thing pretty much always is smoothies. I do all sorts of smoothies. Um, recently, I've been doing like beets and carrots, bananas, um, and then some orange juice and I don't know, whatever else I feel like throwing in, but um, chia seeds, maca, whatever else. But uh, that has been – smoothies are always my go-to breakfast. I feel like I'm in, I have been in a smoothie rut for a really long time. So even hearing you say those other ingredients, I'm like, oh yeah, I could put more than just the same, like six things that I put in a smoothie like every single day. Oh man. I know. I do, I do go through ruts of different types of smoothies for sure. Mm-hmm. Like I get stuck on one thing and then on another and, but um, but I just, I love smoothies. Yeah, me too. Although I do find in the winter that I'm not quite as excited to drink them because all I want is warm things. <laughs> and like, yeah. I don't want to drink this cold smoothie as my extreme first world problem. Um, all right. Next question. Who do you need to write a thank you note to this week or say thank you to? Oh, that's a good one. Right. Um, this is terrible. And I, I should probably double check that we finished all of our thank you notes from Christmas for sure. Because <laughs> um, that's terrible. But I, we wrote a bunch and I should double check though that we finished all of them. There you go. I just um, gave you a homework assignment. My <laughs> husband and I, yeah. Um, but, but besides that, um, I think I, I perpetually kind of go through waves of this, but I really try to th- say thank you to my husband for supporting me in all my like crazy endeavors that I do. And Um, Like this weekend, so he lives in D.C. actually, and I live in Michigan. So we do long distance marriage um, every day. And so he is coming here this weekend, but like I have an exam on Monday. And so he's coming and knows that he's basically just going to be like helping around the house and helping cook food for me and letting me study the entire weekend, Um, which is really nice of him to (laughs) be willing to do that. Um, And he's, you know go hang out with some friends for the Super Bowl on Sunday, but otherwise he'll just feel like helping me. Um, so uh, yeah, I feel like I, I always try to say thank you to him, but that is definitely a big sacrifice that he makes to help me. Yeah. Is the long distance because you're in school? It is. Yeah. So it's been the last couple of years. Um, and it will go for a couple more years. I'm, 
I did an MD PhD, so I did my PhD here, and now I'm in medical school, and he is in the military, so he came here with me to go to grad school, and so he did his grad school here while I was here. Uh, we were together, and then he was moved, the military moved him to um, to another job assignment. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the last question, what's one thing that you find yourself wishing that people were more open and honest about? Mm, I think just life in general. Um, I know that's not a very specific answer, but I, I, well, okay. So one more specific thing that's, that's sort of more medically related, but it really, this is maybe sad, but it really bothers me that a lot of the medical profession and doctors, um, aren't very real with their patients, both about like what can be done and also about end of life scenarios. So, um, that's one thing that that's not really applicable. I know to everyday life, but it's just, it's something that bugs me that, um, that we don't both, we don't give our patients all the options because we think that our patients don't want them. So a lot of people like for instance, dietary changes, you know, just say, Oh, well, patients aren't going to do that. So I just tell them to take these pills because they're not going to bother changing or it's too expensive or whatever. And I think that's not fair because everybody can make their own decision. Um, and also, a lot of doctors just don't, a lot of the medical field, I feel like is not, um, persistent enough about really being educated on how to talk about end of life with people. And, um, I think, you know, probably that does relate that our whole community is not very equipped to talking about that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I definitely agree. I think that's a really interesting and insightful and definitely unique answer. Yeah, yeah, it's probably not what you. No, I but I mean that's but. that's why I like asking these questions because ever so everyone always brings up something that I wouldn't have thought about on my own, and now that will stick in my head, and I will probably think about that on my run today. So yeah, all right, oh, good. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making the podcast possible. Since you make a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season, and I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. Um, I've been supporting your show for a while, I think, uh, since you just, since you started, I, uh, asking for support and I really feel like it's worthwhile to support, um, causes both that I believe in and also that are things that people do that they don't get paid for, um, but maybe are bringing a a vital contribution to both society and to my life and other people's lives. Um, I think about this a lot with journalism too. Um, I, and, and I think that's very closely related that I have a hard time kind of like wrapping my head around the fact that we no longer are paying for newspapers, but yet we expect all the news to show up on our phones. And it's like, well, how are these journalists getting paid? And um, what, you know, I, I have a friend who's a journalist and who works for a, the Michigan, you know, Lansing State Journal. And she she works at the running store with me a little bit. And and she, you know, she with this whole thing with Michigan State going on with the the that case that I'm sure everybody's familiar with, but um, she's been working like around the clock. She's working like 20 hours a day, and she hardly gets paid anything, and nobody appreciates it. And yet they all just want their news articles to show up. And I think of it kind of the same way. I know that's sort of a tangent, but it's just it's like a weird thing that we find ourselves in in society now with technology that we expect all this stuff to just show up and be free yeah and 
and somebody has to do it. So how do how do we reconcile that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I talk about and think about this all the time, the of sort of the categories of things in our mind that we expect them to be incredibly high quality and free versus like, you're never going to go into a bagel shop and expect to just take a bagel and leave. <laughs> like, so right. I don't know. Yeah, I think about that a lot. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. I can't tell you how much your support means to me. And it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. Maybe you can even come on and do one of these little outros with me. That would be fun for sure. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 